What's up? Welcome to my Nostalgia. Dave here, another podcast. What's going on pop culture right now? A few topics this week, not too many, but I think a lot of really important things to discuss. Of course, Transformers Rise of the Beast, the latest Transformers film. Talking about that. Past Lives, the new A24 drama film. A spoiler, my favorite movie of 2023 thus far, a must-watch. Can't wait to get into that. Also, Dave and Central C, two of my favorite rappers, made a surprise collab EP, Split Decision. That was fire. Gotta talk about that. And also, Janelle Monet dropped fourth album, The Age of Pleasure. Janelle Monet's last album from 2018, Dirty Computer, one of my favorite albums of that year. Really exciting that we're getting a new Janelle album after so such a long time. So I think a bunch of important stuff to talk about. Make sure you Follow the pod, linktree.com slash nostalgiapod, youtube.com slash nostalgiapod. Check the link below in the description. Get the pod however you can. Just make sure you get it. Check the link below for the best of 2023 Spotify playlist for my favorite songs of the year updated weekly. Let me know what's good and let's get into it. What's up, my nostalgia? Dave here with a review of Dave and Central C's collab EP, Split Decision, Surprise EP that we just got. Four tracks following lead single Sprinter from the week before. Man, this was fire, and I think this is just so awesome that this came out. You have arguably the best rapper in the UK right now in Dave linking up with the hottest rapper in the UK right now in Central Sea. It's just a awesome mix, match made in heaven, and it's also really good. I think it goes without saying that being able to like hang bar for bar with a rapper of Dave's caliber, caliber is no small feat, but Central Sea really hangs and i think this is just a really awesome you know four track ep i love that this exists i'm so excited about it it's the first new music from dave since uh, starlight loose single came out last year obviously central c has been a bit more prolific recently you know coming off the blistering success of doja at the end of 2022 and central c notably being really the first in long ass time first in recent memory UK rapper to cross over in a real mainstream way in the United States and you're seeing the numbers with Sprinter right now uh, also going awesome sign for Dave who has not quite had that crossover appeal yet obviously these guys are both kings in the UK already and we're ev- uh, that's evidenced by Sprinter breaking the Spotify UK single day streams record when this song came out back on June 2nd uh, these guys are, I think, really at the absolute top. And in the case of you know UK rap, being at the top of the rap game often means you're also at the top of the music game, period. Like These are straight-up pop stars in the UK at this rate. And also, unsurprisingly, Dave, the multi-talented guy that he is, co-produces or produces three of the four tracks as well. And I think, yeah, I mean, these just... These just go really hard. You know, let's start with Sprinter, which was the lead single, has the music video out now. I mean, if that was all we got, I still would have been so happy because it just goes so damn hard, you know? And that's really what this EP is all about. It's Dave and Sench just flexing because they've earned it. They've backed it up for years at this point. Uh, Obviously, Dave a bit longer than Central C, despite the fact that they're actually the same exact age. This EP dropped on Dave's birthday and the day after Sench's birthday. They're both 25 now. Despite all that, Dave has obviously been much more prolific for quite a long time, but they're, they're, really, they're really peers. And 
yeah, it's just, if we had just gotten Sprinter, I would have been happy because it's just like, you know, a legendary collab. You know, I mean, you don't get shit like this all that often, but when you do, I think stuff's really memorable. Like when you get like those really memorable collabs with UK artists, you know, I think about like Hedy One getting AJ Tracy and Stormzy on Ain't a Different or like whenever Skepta collabs with anyone. Like these are like big moments, you know, and I think someone who's relatively new and like being at the top anyway, like Central C, it goes a long way. You know, think of like a Tion Wayne and Artie on a, uh, a body, you know, it's uh, like I feel like just collabs go such a long way uh, over in UK and the UK and to get something like this. I mean, I'm just so excited. Sprinter, as I said, goes really hard. Uh, I think it, it, I just love it. You know, like throughout this OEP, a lot of great quotables. You know, Dave is someone who like you really can stick you with those puns. But I think Central C is like Penn's a bit underrated still. Like he he can really spit and I think really fun amusing ways i think both of them can like kind of stick funny humor in how they go about stuff and even though they're flexing and just doing the braggadocious stuff you know over over you know uk drill beats and a little bit of grime like man it just, it just comes across as so fun you know i love uh cinch on sprinter early on we ain't got generational wealth it's only a year that i've had these millions love that one dave though like sometimes he's hit you with these subtle like shots you know spend like i don't even like my stack just hard as fuck you know i love towards the end of sprinter you have the maybach music drop literally the, the rick ross maybach music drop after they say maybach music amazing callback goes hard then dave with like the biggest diss ever heard that girl is a gold digger can't be true if she dated you i mean say less you know just again goes so hard like kind of like a banjo theme too it's a bit understated and just the verses from Senj and Dave just go really hard. I love Sprinter. Uh, one of my favorite songs of the year thus far. I think the first song on the EP, Trojan Horse, is probably the weakest. Not necessarily I disliked it, just I think it's the least memorable. Track three, Our 25th Birthday. You know, a bit slower song, a bit more piano, but, you know, still giving you, like, the bars. They don't, they don't cheapen out there. You know, Dave kind of ballsily gives you a Jonathan Majors uh, reference, uh, uh, Call a uh, name drop, uh, given what Majors is going through in his personal life right now. A uh, ballsy move to say the least, but like I think one of Dave's best lines on the whole EP is on tw- uh, our twenty fifth birthday. I ain't go off a woman addiction. I got body dysmorphia, a figure addiction. I mean, geez, the the way to say that you like women, like it's just so intricate. You know, it's really great. Uh, then UK rap, the last track. I mean, just a banger, absolute banger, but like has one of those sticky ass, uh, you know, choruses, sticky hooks. Like so think about Central C's uh, rise thus far. A lot of it's been with quotables and sticky hooks, whether it's stuff on commitment issues or loading or, of course, Doja, you know, like like sticky little lines and references are what his star has been built on. And I think with UK rap, I don't know if this is going to be the stickiest song in the United States, but in the UK, you know, she uh was it she, she don't listen to uk rap if it's not dave or Sench. like that that's going to play in clubs for months like that that's hard as hell and i, I really i really love his Sench's line at the end of his verse she only listened to rap caviar she in the, her car playing hella americans so funny uh yeah so i think for for a brief ep uh from the maximum star power you can get right now like it's like a kind of dream from uk hip-hop standpoint and the fact that on this day we also got a j huss single featuring drake after 
you know, the backstory that Drake and Jay Huss have back when Drake brought him out after he got out of prison. Like, really great time to be UK rap fans. So, uh, hopefully, we get something more from Central C soon. You know, like of another uh, full length. I think because like, we haven't had a full length project from Central C since before Doja came out. Obviously, in the beginning of 2022, when he dropped his second tape. So, be looking out for something from Central C soon. I don't know about Dave. Like, he takes more time as an as a true album artist. So, I think the fact that we even got Split Decision uh, uh, is probably as good as we're going to get, you know, but we'll, we'll, we'll wait and be patient, of course, because he's obviously worth the wait. Uh, big fan of these artists. I saw them both on tour within the last year. Uh, this is really just such a treat, but let me know. How did you feel about Split Decision? Uh, did it just completely wow you the way it wowed me as a big fan of both artists? And for more rap reviews, more music reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Janelle Monae's fourth album the age of pleasure yes janelle back first album since 2018 yes dirty computer was already five years ago and it's been a long wait because dirty computer is an amazing album uh it was my number two album of 2018 in retrospect probably my number one album of 2018 to be honest reviewed it on the pod back in the day check that out and yeah janelle's been busy you know acting doing all kinds of stuff. We just saw Janelle in Black Glass Onion last year where Janelle was great at, you know, in a kind of a dual role, spoilers for Glass Onion. But Janelle Monet, at the end of the day, has always been a musician first and a multi-talented musician at that one. Again, jump genres, introduce, uh, you know, more throwback sounds, bringing in lots of punk, uh, sorry, uh, funk and soul into more traditional like pop and hip-hop music it's always been a really fun medley and of course Janelle Monet is also known for these big grand concept albums of course playing an alter ego often on her music with the Cindy Mayweather uh, persona that has been put on for some time and you know in the runtime since we got that first Janelle Monet album back in 2010 uh, I think the peeling of, off of the layers has continued as these Janelle statements, these Janelle musical ambitions have, I think, been more, I don't want to say simplified, but I think the need to hide behind like dense storytelling and, and, and layered uh, metaphor regarding, I think, a pretty common uh, thematic through line through the Janelle Monet music, which would be, of course, you know, queer expression, black identity, independence, stup- uh, you know, shrouding all that in like these like you know, kind of like science fiction storytell- storytelling hasn't been as necessary as Janelle Monáe has come into uh, their own publicly, more proudly, more independently in uh, the more recent times. And I think just kind of laying it out there more explicitly from a lyrical sense kind of makes sense. Now, as a result of that, The Age of Pleasure, album four, it's 14 tracks, but it's only 32 minutes, you know. Those first two albums are super long. As I said, these grand concept albums. This is just definitely a different take from Janelle Monet. And despite all that, of course, there's a lot of hype. Um, because I was far from the only one who really loved Dirty Computer. And while I like the album, I think there's some good songs on here for sure. And I think, you know, sonically, it flows really nicely. I don't think the short runtime does it a lot of favors, at least for me, because 
it's hard not to immediately reflect upon like what I'm not hearing in the age of pleasure. And I just kind of think back on like some of the bigger, grander songs that were on Dirty Computer, for example, songs like, you know, Make Me Feel or, or Screwed, you know, um, Pink even. Like there's just some like big, uh, really like showy songs. You know, I like that as well. And I think there's a few of those on the Age of Pleasure, but not to that degree. You know, there's nothing quite as like pop maximalist in a really fun, jubilant way as like Screwed or as hard from a hip hop standpoint as Django Jane. And that's, that's, that's okay. You know, I think Janelle has clearly wanted to make something that's lighter and funner, but all, it's almost like a, like a follow-up to those first three albums from a messaging standpoint. Like this is like the, the loose record. This is the fun album. This is the horny record. Oh my God. It's so explicit, which is both hilarious and awesome that Janelle is just kind of laying it out there. Of course, this album cycle kind of started in earnest where, you know, Janelle Monet with her uh, their pr- pr- uh, promo photos and whatnot, showing a lot of skin, uh, let's say, which has not been, of course, the uh, trademark uh, in the past when it comes to Janelle's personal fashion styles. And that got a lot of attention on social media, good marketing, I guess we could say, but it really does fit the album. Look at the album cover, again, showing a lot of skin. It fits the album, this kind of looseness, this carefreeness, and I guess it makes sense as, you know, the first post-pandemic pandemic album from Janelle Monet that this would perhaps be that sentiment you know so in the sense I'm a bit like I don't want to say let down but I'm a bit like disappointed that it's not quite as grand as her past work but that's not really a fair comp of course it's just what I have like you know in the back of my mind but if you listen to it you know these 14 songs there's a lot of interludes as well so it's not really 14 tracks it's it's, it's pretty brief and, you know, I think, of course, it always sounds really great. Like, we just kind of go through the track list here, you know. On on Float, track one, which was the lead single, there's these really awesome uh, horns that sound awesome, uh, re- really awesome and big and, and, and loud. I love it. You know, uh, Champagne Shit, track two, uh, the horns are still there. It's a very funky sound. You know, the drums really kicking in, um, you know, going through. You know, I think like the horn production, the funk production is probably the most consistent thing you get here. Like, no better. The horns are really great on that one as well. But like, like again, like nothing's ever like super big. I think it's more about like cohesion and like sequencing because this album will like sneak up on you in terms of like, oh, that's an interlude. Like, uh, for example, what was it? Um, Black Sugar Beach, uh, track three. It's the it's the first interlude. It really just comes across as an outro of champagne shit, and the mixing is so good. I didn't even realize it was a new track in the track listing. It just sounded like it was part of champagne shit, but no, it's actually its own thing. Eventually, you get these other interludes like uh, Hot and Ooh La La with Grace Jones and the French 75 featuring Sister Nancy. And that's all fine and good, but like it just it feels a, a bit slight to me. You know, I think my favorite songs on this would be um, the second single, Lipstick Lover, just really catchy, probably the closest uh, thing Janelle has on this album to like a really poppy track. That one's really fun. Um, the Rush, I think, is quite good, featuring Nia Long and Amari. That is like really sexy, really explicit. Uh, that one's really fun. Water Slide, that's probably my favorite song. You know, it's a very thinly, very thinly veiled metaphor about uh, 
being wet below the belt, let's say. Uh, so from the horny standpoint, it's fitting that bill. But I think it's just actually like really awesome from a vocal standpoint. I love the way it ends. Um, the only song that I thought didn't really work for me was Phenomenal with Dochi. I'm a Dochi fan for sure. And Dochi has a, you know, had a recent hit with uh, what it is. You know, Do- Dochi's a very talented artist. Really excited for like a big full length from her. But I don't know. It just, it kind of felt like a song that was like a few different parts doesn't quite fit together for me. I don't think Janelle necessarily impresses on that song either. So that one, that's the only real miss for me. I think Champagne Shits, very, very fun as well. Just the flexing from a lyrical standpoint from Janelle, quite enjoyable. But again, it's not quite as like hard as Django Jane is on Dirty Computer, as I said. But that one, that one's a fun song as, as a looser one. Honestly, Float, like, I think the float verses are good, but the hook, like, you know, very repetitive. And I think kind of weakly written for, you know, Janelle's standards, that's for sure. Uh, does that really fun quotable from Janelle, though? Of course, they said I was by, yeah, baby, I'm by a whole nother coast. Love it. You know, Janelle's always been happy to poke fun at people questioning her sexual orientation and her relationships and things, even if she's been a bit more open about those things publicly. It's always fun when it comes finds its way back into the music um yeah i think ultimately like there's nothing quite as sticky from like a single standpoint from dirty computer as i've been saying but still sounds really good um it's definitely very easy to put on and fits that summary vibe so you know i think this will really try to push this for for you know top grammys i don't think it's really a contender to win at this stage obviously we know taylor swift and midnight's is going to dominate the album of the year discussion given the year taylor's having but you know i think janelle monet um, the celebration has not quite gotten to the mainstream level yet, and perhaps the next album might be that time for like the Janelle coronation. You know, as people have seen her in more movies, there's been even more albums out, but uh, we'll see on that. But yeah, I think for an album that's I think pretty clearly my least favorite of the four that Janelle Monae has put out, it's, it's still quite good and better than most people's you know music that they put out. And that just speaks to, I think, how talented Janelle Monae is and also how high the standard is, you know? So even if it's not quite hitting the absolute pinnacle that the artist has previously hit in the past, that doesn't mean there's not some merit to it. And, like, the, the production, the sequencing, the instrumentation on this, there's enough going on that warrants multiple lessons, of course. So, yeah, Janelle Monae, uh, let me know. How did you feel about The Age of Pleasure? Did you like it? more than some of her past albums i liked it less how did you feel about it and for more music reviews subscribe and i'll see you next time what's up welcome back to nostalgia dave here with a review of transformers rise of the beasts the seventh live action transformers film first since bumblebee in 2018 second not directed by michael bay and yeah i think um this was an interesting moment for a transformers movie to come out with this franchise notably bumblebee coming out several years ago at this point was a step in a new direction for the transformers franchise smaller stakes story more grounded more human centric regarding Haley steinfeld's character smaller budget when it comes to the production of the movie and that's a film that although it grossed less than the bay movies it actually was a financial success because it cost less as well that being said they quickly announced that they were going to make a bigger Transformers movie once again, and quickly we learned that it was going to be a Beast Wars. 
adaptation. Beast Wars, of course, the kind of cult hit animated Transformers series from the 90s and an ejection of, I think, life into this franchise that has, I think, felt long in the tooth to many uh, towards the end of the Bay run. I like Bumblebee a lot. I, I thought it was honestly like pretty solid like genre storytelling and like perhaps like the highs you can achieve are like dramatic stakes when it comes to a movie about, you know, transforming alien robots after all. Now, I don't have any like affinity for Beast Wars. A lot of people do. In general, I don't have like a huge affinity for Transformers. I enjoyed the films growing up uh, as a kid. Like my me and my brother, you know, enjoyed them when they came out, but I don't think about the franchise like all that much, but obviously I was happy to see Rise of the Beast, check it out, see what it's like. And I would say, kind of unsurprisingly, it's not the best Transformers movie, and it's not the worst one. It's uh, solid. There's things I liked and things I didn't like about it. Let's just get into that. So this is directed by Stephen Capel Jr., who did Creed Two, and I think something that stands out quite quickly is that you did a big uh, large-scale Transformers movie again, but you didn't do it with Michael Bay. Now, that means there's some things that uh, are good, right? I think the plot makes a bit more sense. Not that it makes a lot of sense, but it makes more sense than some of the Bay stuff. There's less uh, leering female camera work, uh, you know, uh, gratuitous shots of the female anatomy that we expected from Michael Bay back then, of course. But one thing you can always count on with Michael Bay is that that man knows how to shoot action. Watch Ambulance last year. Amazing action movie because of base camera work, really. And I think just the action, you know, the watching the Transformers do their thing, which is really the main attraction when you make the big-scale Transformers movies, it's just not quite as compelling as it is uh, under Capel's eye than it was with Bay. That's probably to be expected, but you know, I think of probably like the peak of like Transformers action to me would be in Revenge of the Fallen, which is not a good film overall, but like that forest fight scene where Megatron and the Decepticons kill Optimus Prime, that was like some badass shit and it looked really cool. And, you know, contrast that with like the end of Rise of the Beasts, it's like super gray. You get the gray bad guys, gray bad Transformers on this gray field. It's all grayscale. This doesn't engage you. I think one thing that's nice this time around is that like the character designs make the Transformers stand out a bit more. I think that was a big criticism of the Bay films is that a lot of the Decepticons looked very similar. They're often quite silvery. It's hard to tell who was who unless they had something obvious that differentiated them, like Starscream looking like a triangle or Megatron being Megatron. Like otherwise, it's kind of generic. And I think a lot of the the characters are less generic looking this time around. But the bad guys, like the cannon fodder, um, don't alleviate that problem. And that was a big sigh I had in the third act, which is like watching, oh, uh, yep, here comes the uh, big, you know, onslaught of never-ending uh, anonymous bad guys to slaughter. And it's like, oh, uh, doesn't really compel you too much. Now, I think what Rise of the Beast obviously tries to give you a different dynamic with the Maximals. And, you know, Optimus Primal, the gorilla Transformer voiced by Ron Perlman, the leader. Yeah, Michelle Yeoh as the voice of a Falcon Transformer. And they're supposed to be like a different dynamic. And we don't really get enough time with the Manimals, the, sorry, the Maximals, to have like a big uh, impression 
from them, get a big impression from them. And I'd also say, like, this is, like, a weak Optimus Prime movie, if such a thing exists. Like, I love Peter Cullen's voice work throughout the franchise. He, he Optimus sounds cool and badass. But, like, Optimus Prime in Rise of the Beast is kind of a wet blanket as a character. He, he already was kind of a generic uh, action figure type character anyway. He, there wasn't a whole lot under the hood with Optimus Prime, but he felt particularly, like, uh, I don't know, kind of dull this time around. I wasn't super invested with him. Honestly, I think the best aspect of, like, the Transformers side of things were I thought Michelle Yeoh was, like, pretty solid for what she was given to do. But my favorite thing about this was, honestly, uh, the main villain, which would be Scourge, voiced by Peter Dinklage, who's the uh, leader of the Terracons, who are serving Unicron. Yes, Unicron is, like, front and center in this movie. I think Rise of the Beasts to its credit, takes like the Transformers lore, which is so ridiculous and so absurd, it takes it seriously and just, just goes in and, you know, if, if you want to see a faithful adaptation of this bonkers-ass storytelling that is Transformers, this is what you're going to get. And part of that is Unicron, this uh, gargantuan, planet-swallowing, Galactus-esque villain, uh, voiced by Coleman Domingo this time around. And Scourge, as his like liaison on the ground, Actually, pretty badass. He has a cool look to him with like the like devil mask he's got. Pretty badass when he kills one of the uh, Maximals in the prologue. Yeah, I thought he I thought he was pretty fun. And of course, the other interface with this would be the human characters. Notably, it's like pretty svelte, pretty slight. But you have Anthony Ramos' character and Dominique Fishback's character, both uh, grounded in uh, based in New York City. Uh, Fishback plays a museum like archaeology intern and uh, Ramos plays a like computer wish trying to get a job to support his family he's a sick younger brother hard-working single mom it seems and I think they both give pretty good performances honestly like awesome look for Dominique Fishback who is amazing in the deuce amazing in Judas and the Black Messiah got a lot of love for Swarm on Amazon earlier this year great look for her I think she deserves it and she does a pretty good job for what she's you know given to do and Ramos has, I think, genuine star power. People know him, Hamilton, in the Heights. He's got a lot of stuff coming up. I like Anthony Ramos a lot. I think he's just really charismatic. Um, they both struggle to act with the Transformers characters they in- interact with, but it's no surprise. It's, you know, complete green screen work. Like, it's challenging. I, I don't know how much better you can do with that, but I think because, like, both those characters are given, like, somewhat of like a, like a human-like connection to uh, like their own lives, you know, with like Ramos's character's family in the very beginning, like they, they actually they do feel like real characters, and like they do drive a lot of the plot, which I, which I liked. Like it felt like slightly more grounded for a Transformers movie that was still pretty big. And I think if the third act, I think just looked a little better, like the the action like really delivered at the end. I think this would have been towards the top of my Transformers rankings, if you will. I just think like it, it never really had like a standout like wow moment. Nor did it have anything that like was like a god awful moment either. You know, it's like it's like just a kind of a solid Transformers movie. I think if we could have punched this action up a little bit more, it, it would have been cool. I think the CGI itself, like I mentioned, the grayscale stuff, but like the CGI itself is pretty good. And like obviously, you need to spend a lot to to make it look pretty good. Obviously, this is you know CGI heavy. People know. Um, yeah. So like overall, it's like it's a solid solid film. Uh, as far as the Transformers standard goes, uh, 
you know, albeit it's a low bar. I think people all know that at this point. But it kind of gives you what you want from it if that's what you're seeking. So, you know, don't expect a reinvention. I think that's kind of obvious. Now, at the very end, spoilers, spoilers, but like at the very end, uh, you know, there's kind of this outro scene, uh, or, or actually, no, it's a mid-credit scene, like right after the credits start. And Ramos is actually going to get a job this time. And he encounters Michael Kelly. And I'm like, huh, interesting. You have like a like a real like legit actor in this like cameo role. What is it? Tell him when, like you quickly learn that uh this like group, they understand what Ramos was up to, the Transformers. He denies it. Um, you know, saving the world, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, it's just like a Sector 7 uh, introduction. Because uh, I should have mentioned Rise of the Beast begins in the, takes place in the early 90s. Bumblebee took place in the late 80s. They're both pr- uh, uh, prequels to the other Transformers movies. And it's like, oh, is this like a Sector 7 nod? You know, shout out John Turturro. No, Michael Kelly actually is representative of, spoilers, G.I. Joe. Of course, G.I. Joe, like Transformers, a Hasbro franchise, they are setting up a G.I. Joe Transformers crossover in earnest, it seems. You know, they had previously announced that, Paramount had previously announced that Rise of the Beast would be the first of, uh, you know, a new trilogy, or at least instead of three new movies about Transformers and this animated animated series in development as well. Now, if you think about G.I. Joe, Snake Eyes, I actually thought was, you know, not half bad, but really bombed at the end of uh, 2021. Shout out Henry Golding. G.I. Joe franchise seems pretty inert these days. Transformers, which has always been a bigger six out of the box office from its heyday even to now, Perhaps it's a way to resurrect G.I. Joe in a certain sense for Hasbro, for E1, for Paramount. You know, these rights are actually being sold in a certain sense right now. So more to come here. But kind of interesting. I honestly didn't expect it. It doesn't necessarily get me super excited. Like, I think, like, G.I. Joe is is what it is at this point. But you know, could, could be could be kind of cool and maybe actually ambitious. We'll see. Um, also, because this movie, Rise of the Beast, was set in the 90s, unexpectedly awesome soundtrack just because it's you know set in new york unsurprisingly very 90s hip-hop heavy and like they get like actually like get like really good needle drops you get a uh, rakim and wu-tang and biggie like they play some classics which i appreciated but uh yeah that's rise of the beasts i think it's the box office will be very interesting to analyze as well it's actually looking like it'll be a decent start the opening weekend domestically decent start in china but i have a hard time not seeing Rise of the Beast kind of getting swallowed up by Across the Spider-Verse and being one of the films that gets kind of beaten down in a stacked, you know, release calendar. Little Mermaid's doing pretty strong in the U.S. and uh, Guardians still kicking there. Kind of reminds me of how Dungeons and Dragons kind of got swallowed up in a really busy March. We'll see, because, you know, I think they, they would like this movie to do pretty decent, given the franchise plans they have, but they are expensive, so if it doesn't do much better than Bumblebee, then you can probably kiss the crossover universe goodbye. But it's tracking pretty well so far, so we'll see how it holds as the summer continues. So that's something to watch. But let me know, how did you like Transformers Rise of the Beast? Were you like a hardcore Transformers head? I am not, but like, were you really excited to see the Beast Wars stuff? If so, let me know. And for more movie reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Past Lives, the new drama film from... Celine Song, her directorial debut from A24, starring Greta Lee. This is the best movie of 2023 thus far. I absolutely loved this movie. It 
incredibly moved me in ways I didn't expect. And it's definitely my favorite movie of the year thus far. I'm going to get into all of those reasons why, including spoilers, but you know, I'll just start at the beginning here. But yeah, amazing film, a must-watch movie. This came out in a you know, limited release two weeks ago in New York, LA. Got a brief expansion last week, and I was able to see it. It'll go nationwide uh, in a few weeks, June 23rd. So it's coming. Everyone will be able to see this soon, but it's really great. You know, it's premiered back at Sundance, but now it's, you know, got the A24 push behind it. I think this is the first real official, like, Oscar contender movie that's come out, especially on the original screenplay front, the Best Actress front for Greta Lee, um, you know, other awards bodies, Best First Feature film from Celine Song, the Korean-Canadian playwright. This is her first film. So impressive. I think so incredibly affecting and moving. It's a movie that doesn't steep itself in cliche or predictability at all and absolutely nails its ending. But I, I think it's a really captivating movie for something that's as dramatic as it is. Now, this is a movie about uh, Nora, a uh, young woman uh, in Seoul who is uh, emigrating, or her fa- family is immigrating from Seoul to Canada and then to the United States. And in the process, uh, Nora is going to leave behind her you know, childhood friend, friend uh, Sung. You know, they're, they're both like about 12 years old at the time. They seem to have a real uh, kinetic kinship, platonic, but perhaps suggesting of future romance down the line once they both mature. One of those like really close connections that sometimes you do find um, in, in young people. And uh, this movie, you know, having that premise of right there, I think is a really strong hook because then the structure of this film really jumps in and grabs you because we very quickly jump ahead 12 years. Now we're with young Nora uh, in, in her in her 20s, played by Greta Lee now, uh, moving to New York City to pursue a, uh, a, play, a writing career, you know, as, as a playwright. And uh, this is a bit autobiographical from Celine's song as well, so you can kind of feel the uh, uh, connection there. Real-life playwright makes a movie about a playwright. There we go. But uh, Nora... And Nora, of course, is her, uh, you know, uh, given uh, English name, accepted English name that she uh, picks. Nora, um, you know, really wants to make something uh, of her life in New York after her family has, you know, immigrated twice to, uh, you know, find a new life, leaving Korea behind. And kind of by, like, by chance, Nora looks up uh, Sung, you know, kind of like the memory of Sung when they were kids kind of pops back up in her in her mind when talking to her mother and she looks him up on Facebook. Funny enough, this is like set in like 2012, so it's like Facebook 1.0, the very original basic streamlined version of Facebook. Looks him up, connects with Sung, um, and actually does a Skype call. Again, shout out 2012. And they they connect for the first time in 12 years. You know, Sung is still in Korea and Nora has, you know, pursued a completely new life without him. And they start, you know, catching up and I guess reacquainting themselves with each other um, over Skype, you know, with that massive time difference and whatnot. And then, you know, 
Nora makes a, I think, a very clear decision, a very important part of the movie, where Nora decides to kind of cut off their their skyping, their Skype calls, their their regular correspondence, getting you know to know each other again, because Nora really wants to make something of her life in New York first. She hasn't doesn't feel like she's accomplished anything yet, and she wants to do that first, and says that they can like reconnect down the line, and it's like really I think a really you know tough. Um, tough moment you know for Sung because uh you know we spend some moments with Sung with his buddies you know back in seoul like spending time at the dinner table drinking soju and stuff kind of talking you can tell that Sung has had this feeling of longing this feeling of missed opportunity missed chance uh with nora even though that was a connection from when they were very young and it's uh almost a bit you know, naive to think that way, but his friends kind of encourage him in a certain sense. And he's incredibly disappointed when Nora wants to cut it off. Um, and again, this is again, just, just Skype calling. Right. And I think at this point, th- this movie, that structure, I think is really, really um, engaging, you know, because we quickly transition to Nora going on a artist retreat, writer's retreat over in Montauk um, in Long Island. And there she meets a fellow, artist, a, a, a writer, like a novelist, um, Arthur, played by John Magaro. And um, they they hit it off at the retreat. And then we have another 12-minute flash forward moving into the you know the third act of the film, basically. And next thing we know, they're now like you know, 36 or so, in their mid-30s, 12 years in the future. And, oh, and they got married. Arthur and Nora are married. And it's like, oh my God. You know, it's like, you think this is a movie that's setting up this like, will there or won't they, um, you know, tr- loss in translation type storytelling, and it still might get there, but to throw a big wrench in like the Nora getting married, you know, to a to to a, a white American as well, you know, really kind of committing to that life, and you know, at this stage, um, you know, Act Three, I think, really kicks into high gear and everything really kind of comes through um, with a key decision. But like there's this, I think really strong thematic uh, thing presented um, at that Raiders retreat when Arthur and Nora connect. And that is Nora bringing up the Korean concept of Inyon, which is broadly, uh, forgive me, but like broadly just like a concept of past lives. Again, the name of this movie, past lives that like you perhaps meet someone in a previous life and then your interaction, your relationship with them can progress or change or grow um, in, in a future life, basically is that, that, that concept. And Nora kind of brings it up as a joke um, to Arthur because she says, oh, it's just how uh, Koreans use Inyun as a way to seduce people. And like, she does that and she gives this kind of like subtle mannerism as like telling Arthur, it's okay for you to kiss me now, you know? And then we quickly flash forward 12 years, they got married and, um, Inyon will come back up at the end of the movie, but I think that was like a really a really funny moment. There is some brief moments of subtle humor often with Arthur involved that I think go a really long way. But Greta Lee to this point is giving, I think, a, a really incredible performance because it's often subtle, it's often mannerisms with the face, you know, uh, whether it's her side profile or something like gesturing. Um, I was quite impressed, especially because my main interaction with Greta Lee, who's been very active as an actor, mainly as a comedy actress. You know, think of her in Russian Doll in a supporting role, for example. She's a funny person. John Magaro, 
my gosh, he is really quickly rising up the rankings of some of the best actors we have right now. Think of his roles in First Cow and showing up earlier this year, definitely an A24 favorite at this point. And he gives a really great performance as Arthur. And, you know, I think Act 3 is really where the, the action, if you want to call it that, happens in past lives because we jump ahead 10, 12 years again. Arthur and Nora are happily married. They're very successful in their artistic careers as well, living in the East Village in New York. And they, uh, Nora connects with Sung again after 12 years of them not talking at all once they stopped uh, Skyping. And uh, Sung actually decides to go come to New York from Seoul, visit New York. And it's not positioned or like brought up to Nora as he's visiting New York to meet her. But once they do reconnect in person for the first time in 24 years, and I believe it was Central Park, they Nora quickly realized that, yeah, he actually did come to, to see her again. And from this point out, the I think the chemistry between Greta Lee as Nora and uh, Tao Yu as Sung is absolutely palpable. And at this point, watching the movie, you are absolutely wrapped and on the edge of your seat because you don't know what's going to happen. Because again, this movie has not steered into cliche at any point. So you haven't really had a feel for like what's going to happen. And I think it's also an amazing movie because this ending is so, I think, rich to discuss with other people who have seen the movie because, I mean, something wild really happens. Um, Nora, after spending like a whole day uh, with Sun, they go see the Statue of Liberty. Um, they, you know, spend, spend, spend time together talking to each other and stuff. Uh, Nora brings Sun to her home and introduces him to Arthur. And, you know, Arthur speaks just a faint amount of Korean. Sung speaks just a faint amount of English. They don't really have the ability to communicate all that well. And from there, they go out to a bar together. And it's one of these, I think, just an amazing sequence where you have Nora in between them sitting at a bar, this kind of wide shot. And they're talking, and Nora's kind of like doing some translation between the two. But then... You know, Sung and Nora have this conversation together at the bar and they kind of isolate Arthur and Arthur can't really keep up with the conversation. They're not bringing him in as much anymore. And you can tell it's bothering Arthur. And even before this, you could tell that Arthur was, you know, kind of really struggling with like the idea of, uh, you know, the past um, spurned potential lover of his wife, wife's deep past has come back into her life and you know does he feel threatened but he doesn't want to be overly controlling of his wife i think it's a really uh crazy situation to put yourself in and john mcgarrow just really i think is able to demonstrate how like you would be going through it in your mind in that situation and you can tell that he's getting a bit just upset not not that he's lashing out or anything, but you can tell he's having a hard time basically sitting next to this like incredible chemistry you know and I think before this, you know, before um, Haesung is brought to, to the bar, like the night before, when Nora explains like the day they had had together when he, she was catching up with him, Arthur and Nora have this, I think, really astute conversation, like in bed, just talking to each other 
where they kind of speak about how they, you know, came together. And I think the big part of that was they both were going to be in New York City. Both had artistic ambitions. Um, you know, them getting married faster than planned helped Nora with getting her green card. Some conveniences with how they got together, right? And it's in spite of all that, of course, they are happy. They do love each other. They have a, they have a great life together, and yet. You can tell that, like, as it's being positioned when they're talking to each other at the bar, like, Nora has this feeling of, like, you know, what what could have been. Not even so much the one that got away, but just, like, is this the life I was supposed to have lived? And that's what's, I think, so amazing about past lives is that it's so interesting, I think, and more like a philosophical, um, you know, proposition about, like, the lives we all live and whether that's what we are like really supposed to do in life. And you can break that down into like missed opportunity and like the one who got away. But I think, you know, bringing in that, that premise of Inyun, you know, after um, uh, Nora and Haesung and Arthur leave the bar, um, you know, Haesung calls an Uber from their place to go, you know, go to the airport, I believe to, to leave or at least go to his hotel and then leave the next day. And Arthur stays on this uh, in the apartment, and Nora walks him to the Uber. And when then we have this, like I believe it's like five six minute tracking shot, and it's again it's a wide shot, a pan. They walked out of their brownstone, and Nora and Haesung walk from as our viewer they walk to our left towards the on the sidewalk, almost like walking back into the past. Then they stand there on the curb, just kind of looking into each other's eyes. And at this point, as a viewer, you're on the edge of your seat because you've been so invested in these characters and this journey and these performances and th- this this film kind of subverting expectations at all, 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 all opportunity. You don't know what's going to happen. And it, it's you're incredibly moved. And, you know, they um, they embrace briefly, but really it's just a discussion of, uh, you know, I think, I think a really dynamite way to end the movie where, Haesung brings up the premise of past lives and perhaps this very moment that they are sharing together, this is actually a past life and that in the future they may will perhaps be together, you know? And then they leave, or Haesung leaves, gets in the car and leaves. Nora walks back to our right, back into the present time, back into the future. And Arthur's there on the stoop waiting for her and then she just kind of like sobs in here in in his uh in his arms and and the movie ends and yeah i think just the whole that 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 idea at the very end of like this perhaps actually being a past life and that there actually maybe there is a chance that they this life they could have had together might still actually happen in the future um i think this is a really affecting like a landing of the plane if you will such so after all that tension and palpable energy you had felt at the bar scene beforehand and yeah i mean i was just really moved by it i thought it was i think it's a really uh, impressive film and like i was actually kind of like overcome with emotion after watching the movie like I, as i was walking out of the theater i actually like kind of like welled up just thinking not because i was like sad about the characters perhaps but i don't know i think it's this like very existential type story and it just kind of makes you think about things whether that's in your own life or just um in general, from a more generic standpoint. So, yeah, I mean, I think just talk about like, you know, like multiple lives and destiny and fate, 
all these kind of weighty themes we think about all, all the time in storytelling. But this is, I think, one of the most sophisticated ways th those type of concepts have been presented in a movie. And again, a big part of that is the acting is this incredibly smart and layered screenplay is the the structure of that screenplay, as I said, just a dynamite ending. I think the Arthur performance from John Magaro, again, goes a long way with this film as well, um, because his, um, he, Arthur being able to communicate a lot about what that character is feeling in relationship to Nora without having lots of lines all the time in some of those scenes, again, speaks to Magaro's acting performance, but just goes a really long way. Um, obviously, it's a huge breakout performance from Greta Lee, who had a comedy background to this point. Um, like I said at the beginning, best actress worthy, without a doubt. That'll be a campaign that A24 pushes for with, without question. Um, yeah, I mean, I just, I mean, I, I was like really, really blown away. I think it's a special film. It's a, a film worth discussing with people as well for how you interpret things and whether that's on a more superficial level, like, like is Nora actively settling by not running off with Taesung or Haesung versus sticking with Arthur or just more of the existential stuff that's really stuck with me. You know, I think Tao Yu does a really good job as Haesung despite not being the real lead character. You know, um, he has, a, he's a, a strong presence to him. Um, and I think he's also able to handle some of the emotional scenes as well. Really liked him. Notably, this movie was announced. Uh, Choi Woo Shik was actually supposed to play uh, Hei Sung. That should be a name familiar to people who've seen Parasite or Train to Busan. But that ended up falling through. But I mean, I think the casting absolutely was dynamite throughout the film. And yeah, I just absolutely loved it. My favorite movie of 2023 thus far. You know, I, and I think for a movie like this, some people might think, oh, does it manipulate you into feeling something? I did not feel manipulated at all. I thought it was incredibly genuine. The way it gets to the emotional beats it lands on, absolutely loved it. And I'm really hopeful that this movie can make some kind of impact at the box office. You know, in this brief expansion this past weekend, it had a strong per theater average for sure. But we've seen that in the past recently. And hopefully this can be a more adult drama film that can find some kind of audience out there. You know, A24 is doing a traditional platform release over a four-week period. Hopefully that helps the old school way of building buzz, building word of mouth. And the word of mouth, of course, is through the roof with this movie. So I'm hoping the movie makes some kind of box office impact and really gets in front of people because I think this is a movie that will really stick with people that watch it. It'll definitely stick with me. But uh, let me know, how did you feel about past lives? Did you love it as much as I did? And for more movie reviews, of course, Oscar talk, when this movie comes back around for that later in the year, make sure you subscribe. And I'll see you next time. All right, that's going to do it for the pod this week. Next week, we're going to talk about DC's latest blockbuster, The Flash, a film announced damn near a decade ago, finally in the ether for us to discuss. I'm traveling, so I'm not going to get to too much more for next week. But I'll be catching up on everything in the weeks to come. But talk on The Flash next week. Make sure you subscribe. YouTube.com plus NostalgiaPod. Linktree.com plus NostalgiaPod. Check the link below. Get the pod. Hit the playlist. Check the link below. Let me know what's good, and I'll see you next week. Yeah.